0: Welcome back folks to the Get a Grip On Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Chuck Saboda, who is the former CEO and chairman of Cree. Never heard of those guys. Um but before we get to that interview, uh we gotta talk to you about the original. Yeah. That's right. You gotta go to energyfocus.com. That's E N E R G Y F O C U S dot com, Greg
1: that's right and today you're going to see this nouveau item on the screen i think scott's putting that on there for you it's a portable uvc disinfection device it looks cool looks funky you can see it it's like a purple color it fits aesthetically in some places real nice and it gives you up to five air changes per hour in a 200 square foot room that's some clean air right there in that fixture or in that unit there's no filter changes required and it's an easily replaceable uvc lighting module that powers it check it out from energy focus
0: the original brother, always coming out with the hot products. That's right. You got to go to energyfocus.com, dot com, And of course, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Yeah. Our old tagline, Greg, used to be where lighting means business. I want to bring it back, but I hate changing taglines, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> but for right now, we got Chuck Sabota on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Hey, Chuck, how's it going?
2: It's great, good to be with you guys today.
1: Hey. thanks for coming on, Chuck. We've got to get in. We've got a lot of stuff to cover with you. It looks like you uh, you have a long history in lighting, or at least in the LED market. Tell us about Cree. When did you start with Cree?
2: Wow, I, so I started with Cree back in 1993. Although I first met the guys in 1991 when I was a, a junior marketing engineer at Hewlett Packard out in California if that was pre lumileds pre Agilent, pre Avago, when it was HP's LED business. And these uh, two crazy guys showed up to show us off this new LED they had. And we went into a dark basement room in California and no windows, turned off all the lights. And they said, look at that. And they hit a button and there's this tiny blue speck of light and they go blue LED. And we're like, wow. I mean, at that time, You have to understand, red and green had been around for two decades and no one thought blue would ever happen. And so that was my first introduction to the guys. Took me two years to decide to join them. And uh, so got there in 1993 when we did, Cree was about a $6 million in revenue company. Um, We had a blue LED that was so dim that uh, if I put it next to what we make today, Uh, you guys wouldn't notice it was even on. And uh, that's where the journey started. And it was an amazing, uh, you know, for me, amazing, almost 30 year career um, from when we went from 6 million to uh, at the peak, we were at 1.6 billion and uh, a lot of interesting uh, turns along the way. I can tell you that when we started, we thought we were going to make blue LED chips. We never thought we'd make packaged LEDs or lighting at all. That was never part of the original plan.
1: So the, you brought up somebody and that's what I was going to ask is who are the two crazy guys who started Cree? I don't even know that.
2: Well, it's actually, I think we could give it credit to, there was five of them. So there was Neil and Eric Hunter. So two brothers that uh, had decided they wanted to start a business. were looking for something interesting. And Eric had, uh, done his, um, master's degree at NC state university. And there was a lab there where they were working on this new material called Silicon carbide funded by the government. And, uh, he had said, you know, these got this cool technology. We should take a look at it. And so the three of them, or the five of them, got together and spun the company out of NC State for very little money. In fact, the original funding was, uh, one brother got a second mortgage and the other one pyramided five credit cards. That is the founding capital of Cree. And uh, they uh, licensed the technology for stock in Cree and said, hey, hopefully someday this will turn into something. And uh, it eventually did. I will say though, that in in 1987, their five-year business plan took us about 10 to 20 years to actually achieve.
1: So they started in 1987 is when Cree actually was getting going?
2: Yeah, that was they were started three guys in the same office in a small business park and doing the research actually in the labs at NC State. And eventually they built their own labs and went from there.
1: What, what does Cree stand for?
2: Well, everyone thinks it stands for something cool, like you know, crazy research engineers or whatever. It, it actually is a family name. So um both Neil and Eric's dad, uh his middle name was Char he was Charles Cree Hunter and cree actually was a name that was given in the mountains of north carolina the f- oldest son when they were born was given the last name of the minister that baptized them and so he was actually a scottish minister and that's how the name came about they just thought it sounded cool
1: wow that's interesting i thought it, i thought for sure it stood for something but that's it huh nice
2: yeah you so know you sometimes got, the uh yeah. sometimes the simplest stories are the ones with less logic are the most interesting actually
1: yeah for sure. so you you joined him in 1993, and what was your role initially when you started?
2: I had the title of LED Product Manager, and what that meant was uh, I was in charge of sales and marketing for our LED products. I had a team of myself, so I was a team of one, and on the first day I got there, I learned that they had had one customer, uh, but that customer had canceled all their orders. So on my first day of work, I actually found out that my job was to go find some customers cause we didn't have any anymore. And uh, that's how I got into the blue LED business.
1: So the $6 million in revenue was from one customer?
2: Actually it was 1 million from that customer and 5 million of it was actually government R and D contracts. So the company has really 1 million of real revenue and what they failed to mention, the company had just gone public by the way with 6 million in revenue. So this is, you didn't do this back in, 1993, but they had gone public with a a third tier investment bank, and calling them third tier was a compliment. And uh, these guys were able to figure out how to raise, I think they raised $12 million in the IPO. And, uh, but uh, yeah, they uh, went public, and within about a month or two, the customer canceled all the orders. Now, I will tell you, when I took the job, they failed to mention until after I moved to North Carolina and left my family behind in Colorado that I was joining a company that no longer had any customer orders. But that was <laughs> why they hired me, they said.
1: What was who was your first customer that you signed up?
2: Wow, I, so I spent uh, about six months traveling the world, visiting companies that might buy an LED. Um, and our first customer, uh, there was actually two, One of them, we got a blue light designed into the air conditioning indicator in a dashboard of a car through Siemens in Germany. So, you know, you used to have little lights. They're mostly lamps back then. We, and they didn't have one. They, they were starting to go to LEDs, but they didn't have one for blue. So we got our blue indicator light to, it dis, uh, designed into the air conditioning indicator. And then a company in Hong Kong had come up with a way to make moving signs. I don't know if you guys remember those moving LED signs that used to be in bars around the country that uh, you know would you know, that tell you the special of the day. Sometimes they had sports scores. Well, there was a company that had come up with a way to add blue to it, and they had used our LEDs. And so those were the first two.
1: Wow. And took off from there. So you guys, that's one of the questions, too, with Cree, I've always had. Cree is technically a chip manufacturer. Is that, is that what you categorize them as?
2: Wow, I would say originally they were a material science company looking to turn it into some type of a chip. So semiconductors was the space, but really in the beginning, you know, the, for the first three or four years, they had to actually invent the material to then try to invent a semiconductor. So silicon carbide is the base material, and it didn't actually, no one had ever produced it before. And so they had this one good result at NC State, and so they actually had to build a core semiconductor material science business, then start to develop devices. The blue LED was the first one, but today if you look at Cree, they sell, in fact, they've recently sold off their LED business. So today they sell more semiconductors that aren't related to LEDs, power devices, RF devices, but a semiconductor company is probably the way to think of them at its core.
1: And when you started, uh, were you guys getting production from China or were you doing it all in North Carolina or where was it all coming from?
2: Oh, no, we everything was done in a small business park in North Carolina. In fact, uh, the company from its early days, the founders were paranoid about someone stealing the technology. So to give you an idea, when I flew out, I was working for Hewlett Packard. They fly me out for my interview. I was only allowed to interview in the booth at the local restaurant. Because... They didn't want me to go in their offices. And so at the end they said, okay, I get this, but can I like get a tour? And they go, sure. And they drove me around the outside of the building. I said, can I go inside? They said, no. I said, well, how do I know what it looks like? He goes, you don't. And they said, unless you come work for us, we're not letting anybody inside. So they were, we built everything in the United States, including we designed and created all of our own equipment to then make the semiconductor. So we actually pretty much had to invent every piece of the process to to make it work. There was no, I mean, there was, we were the only company in the world trying to make silicon carbide based semiconductors, which means we had to invent the equipment to do it. We had to invent the physics around how to make it happen and then build semiconductor processes that would then make that possible. And so we borrowed some ideas from the silicon industry, but most of it had to be created along the way.
0: I was just, Listening to the whole Silicon Carbide, North Carolina University um, government contract research and development grants. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about ROI or payback in in the lighting industry. But I was thinking about it and it's like, imagine what the return on investment is for the country of the United States on investing in a company like Cree. Like you think about, you hear a lot about research and development grants and stuff like that. And America doesn't invest enough in research and development or America needs to invest more or Canada should invest more. And the reason why is not because you're giving away free money, because there's a massive return on investment for these types of activities if it's done properly. What was it about the way that was it just lucky? Like, do we have to combine another thousand companies that failed with Cree to get the proper ROI on that? Or how do you look at that from you know, your perspective looking back.
2: Yeah, you know, Cree, and we've had a chance to actually participate from time to time in some uh, government forum where they try to figure out why did Cree work and so many don't, it's actually a great question. Um, Our funding specifically came primarily from DARPA Mm -hmm. and it's had different names over the years. It used to be different parts of it, but it was really the defense department has a budget and they still do today, where they're looking out 20 years. And they're going what could happen if this were to work and they're purposely choosing things that are so they're they're they have an investment horizon that no you know investor funded business could ever really go after right they're they're beyond that horizon and their thought is is that look we know a bunch of this won't work but if even a few of these work they're transformational it's kind of a Think about the the original idea behind the space program and all the technologies that came out of it. They just said, look, we're gonna try to get there and we'll we'll figure it out along the way. Well, DARPA continues to do that with all types of technology. And actually Cree wasn't funded originally because they thought we'd make a blue LED. The original funding from the government was really built around this idea that we could make RF devices that would enable wireless standards that weren't possible back then. Really thinking about them primarily as a uh, radar defense application. And the other thing was, is the government was very interested in power semiconductors. This idea that if you could, if these materials could somehow be invented and commercialized, you would do things with uh, power switching capabilities that just weren't possible. If you look at that investment from the late 80s to today, 5G wireless base stations are almost exclusively based on a silicon carbide Based device. We're talking about, what is that, 30, almost 40 years later? If you look at what's inside most electric vehicles or battery storage systems, those are using silicon carbide switching devices to make them work. So, you know, I think it's a it's probably one of the places where I think government funding has this incredible opportunity. I think where you get into trouble honestly is, you know, we also did a lot of work with the Department of Energy around lighting. And I think when it comes to lighting, one of the challenges we've had in terms of funding things is, and I, and I said this to a group of the at the DOE recently, is I said I think you guys have decided to become too short term focused. I think companies are good at short term stuff, right? We, we we'll figure it out. There is a business, there's money to be made. We'll we'll get it, and we're really efficient. Where you want to push people is, hey, let's go beyond that horizon that a company would consider. And let's look for the big things. And I think one of the challenges we've gotten a little stuck on is, you know, we got LED lighting to happen. That was great. We're spending a lot of money now on things that are, are they really fundamentally enabling or not? And then one of the examples I would tell you is we Cree invested a ton of money in a lot of the technology around the science of light, changing colors. How do we affect people's moods and behaviors? It's really interesting technology. The question is, what problem does it solve that's actually a big problem that anyone recognize, right? How do you translate this to a problem that needs to be solved? You know, LED lighting is fundamentally, it's just cheaper at the end of the day, right? It just, it, it's, a, it's a fun, in the end, what we proved is that you'd spend more money if you didn't use LED lighting. Now, I will tell you in the beginning, no one believed me, but that's a different story, mm-hmm. um, but uh, today, Uh, you know, I think some of the things we're chasing are frankly, maybe too incremental instead of what's, let's do something really big. And, you know, that would be my, that's been kind of my message. And the few times I've had a chance to talk to the people funding that today is I think when government's involved, they need to be beyond, you have to, they should be looking beyond what any company would rationally fund. That's when you're going to find the things that are worth doing.
0: But before they do that, I think they should make it as easy as possible to start a business. Um, you know, and to... Get rid of as much red tape. It's like, there's like, there's two things going on there. There's funding and, you know, Canada has the Business Development Bank of Canada, for example. The U.S. has DARPA. I think DARPA is Defense Advanced Research Project Association or something like that. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um and then you have Darpa but then you have all these states and municipalities and the federal government putting loads of red tape on people trying to start businesses. So there's it's there, there's a push pull there. I think the priority would be to make it as easy as possible for people to start businesses and to make money and then to to you know maybe spread some money around into those various areas using a Darpa or using people that are thinking very long term and thinking about, you know, America's security, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, NATO perspectives and and space and Mars and people that are thinking about those things to then, you know, sprinkle some money around in different areas.
2: So, you know, it's interesting. You I think you're really describing two very different um, objectives right one of them is how do we get businesses started I think there, that's a, a valid conversation then there's another one is how do we encourage investment in disruptive technology that's beyond the horizon of rational business I think the government's good at the second one in the first one I think the red tape comment is uh, is a fair one. we do put a lot of things in the way at the same time you know having had to survive that experience and get around it I mean you know let's talk about LED lighting right? So LED lighting comes out and they made the standards for an LED light bulb were harder to achieve than for the existing lamps that were in the market at the time. So we're getting ready to launch our first LED light bulb and they decide that an LED light bulb, if it falls on the ground and breaks, you have to prevent the glass from shattering. It's not allowed because if you don't, it's dangerous and someone could electrocute themselves, okay? But yet, compact fluorescent light bulbs shattered and broke, regular lamps, traditional lamps shattered and broke, and they added these boundary conditions that were frankly illogical. And so I would argue that's a bad red tape. That being said, we figured it out, and what it actually ended up forcing us to do is come up with lamps that were better, even more, the, the, the gap between what an LED lamp could do and a traditional lamp got even bigger because we had to overcome it. So I think there's this, I, I agree with red tape for the of red tape isn't helpful. At the same time, the most innovative companies figure it out. And I'm a big fan and you're going to maybe think it's great. I think one of the challenges with most startups is they are too well-funded. Hmm. They have too much money. A in beautiful. fact, I, I think that companies get overfunded, tend to never learn to make the really tough choices, the good business decisions for, hey, I got to get there. There's not enough money I figure it out. And when you I, desperate- I say
0: that those people are not entrepreneurs, so, you know, <laughs> I, I would say that, like, you know, the Silicon Valley crowd today with the amount of venture capital that's poured into these businesses with that have never made earned a dollar in profit. Um, the, the unicorns and all this talk of billion-dollar companies that make no money. I don't really – that's a different thing than a, what – like the idea of an – it's a different category or something. It's almost like you are uh, an extension of somebody's venture capital portfolio manager, something like that.
2: You know, I, well, I hate to say it that way. Say...
0: I, I, that's what it's. No, no, like no. We're me.
2: actually – I think you and I are actually more aligned than you, than you think. So I'm always a big fan of, I love the term serial entrepreneur. And you look at it and they said, have, has any of them ever made any money? And the answer is no, that's not a serial entrepreneur. That's a serial failure. Yeah, I sure. mean, look, I, it's okay that you tried, but if don't, to me, entrepreneur is one you have and have a business success, success and a successful business is one that at some point is self-sustaining. It can mm-hmm. pay for itself. So we're aligned. And I think honestly, it's one of the challenges with uh, a lot of technology development today and in a lot of programs, you know, People get a little upset. I like to say that, you know, companies that I Google, I don't consider innovative in the last 20 years and say, well, they're do you a one trick pony, one trick pony, Well, and, Google AdWords. And then they that's say, it. Well, they have Google AdWords. Right. And, 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 and I would say, and before that Gmail, those are the two things they added value at. Right. But what's interesting is, but they say, well, look at Google labs, look at all the great technology they've invented. And I said, yeah, look at how much of it they've commercialized. None of it. Zero. Yeah. There's nothing there. Okay. And what's interesting is it gets into, so why is that? And I, it's not just money. It's also, I think the great entrepreneurs, they have a, a pressure. They have a, I'm going to starve if I don't figure this out mentality that drives them someplace. And I think when you're in a really well-funded organization doing R&D, if you fail, you don't get fired. You don't lose your job. That I'm telling you, I don't, there's something to that mentality that it makes companies successful. And, and the data I would show you is look at the number of successful entrepreneurs that Google funded through Google Ventures versus the ones they funded themselves. And the answer is they got nothing out of their labs. But Google Ventures has actually funded a lot of very successful companies because those entrepreneurs, if they didn't weren't successful, they were going out of business.
0: Let me, let me throw another angle at you. Do you feel like there's way too much capital being invested in Silicon Valley startups that are either delivering food or, um, addicting people to social media? Like, it seems to me like the smartest people in the world, um, are not, you know, creating human health opportunities. They're not solving real problems. They're making addictive video games and software and social media and uh, way too much of our capital is being deployed, because capital is limited. Um, way too much of it is being deployed to get people to look at screens more um, and not to solve real problems. Like, you're telling me we can't get lighting controls right when there's so many software developers out there that are super smart, but they work at Facebook, they work at uh, Twitter, they work at places where, you know, in fact, you may be looking at that products that create negative productivity. Like, you take a like, negative productivity Like the productivity improvements at Twitter is negative productivity for society. Is there there too much capital in that space?
2: Uh, Too much capital, I don't know that I would say too much. I think there is a disproportionate amount there because that is where the potential largest returns are. The fact is, is that if you get one of those right as an investor, I'm putting my investor hat on, those returns are potentially phenomenal. The challenge we have here is if I do get building controls right, I don't know how I'm gonna make any money at it because it's a closed market. I mean, honestly, Lucree was the new guy trying to get into lighting. It was brutal to try to bring disruptive technology because you have a longstanding industry with a lot of existing relationships and it's a very disconnected industry, right? That the person that actually uses the light is very disconnected from the person that decides what lights Get put in to start with, right? And you think about that chain, and it's not because anyone's trying to do a bad job. It's how the industry has evolved. But when you disconnect that, you can have a great innovation in lighting, but you don't get to sell it unless you have access to the channel. And getting access to that channel, it's really like because I'm not anymore. The channel's gone. I think it's because. It's gone. Well, I I would say, but I would say it is, and it isn't gone. So I'd say that, you know, the fact is, is that, uh, the channel I describe more broadly. So who has access to the best agents, The channel, the 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 problem
0: is the channel has been redirected. So the channel runs right through the design lights consortium. And there's like a bottleneck there. And I want to get into this with you for a little bit. So I interrupted you there, but I want to talk a little bit, a little bit about China. And Johnny come lately in the Lighting Marauders, is what I call them, okay? So how did you guys deal with, like you talked about Neil and Eric being super secretive, I love it, because they know that if they patent something, they're giving it away basically, and they're keeping everything secret. Like there's like a time when you want to have everything to yourself. How did you guys deal with China in terms of intellectual property while you were at Cree, And, and did you have any leaks, or did you have anything stolen?
2: So what I would tell you is that early on, uh, we did everything in the u s and protected the technology incredibly well and When I say protected it um within our factory, if you worked in one department that then passed the product to the next department, your key you could not actually access the departments on either side of you. Hmm. We compartmentalized within the company to the level that is what you needed to know you need to know now we might some might argue we were overly paranoid, and we probably lost some things because it made communication harder but I would say that we did a great job of protecting our know-how and trade secrets, including learning that you know one of the biggest leaks for us is we're the equipment vendors. So a lot of people hire equipment vendors to help them, and they want them to come in and work on their process. Well, if your expertise is the process and you tell your equipment vendor, they tell their other customers. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the challenges we faced. Now they're I like, say li- that- They're like lighting agents. They come to your business and ask <laughs> you what you're doing and then go tell all your competitors your sales strategy. Because yeah. yeah, that's their business, right? They're in the business of sharing sure. knowledge, right? Whether you like it or not, that's their business model. And so that's, you know, uh, equipment companies are in the business of selling equipment. And if they can help you use it, you'll buy more of it. So, look, I didn't like it, but I think we have to be honest. It, you can look at it and it's a rational problem. Now, that being said, when we became a packaged LED company, we started to make the LED components. We had to go to Asia. There, it was not practical. So we actually bought a company in China and started making the LEDs themselves. So the chips would come from North Carolina and the LEDs would be turned into a packaged LED, um, you know, semiconductor device that you could design, put on a circuit board, that happened in China. We bought a company and I think we did a great job of protecting much of the technology. Some of it we weren't gonna, but there were processes we had in rooms there that were cut off from the rest of it. And there were things that had to do with materials or equipment or we would make the materials or the equipment in the U S and send it over. And there weren't, you just ran it and if it had to be fixed. We would send someone there to do it. Now I would say that's not unique to China. I would say that's anywhere where you have a competitive marketplace. When people leave one company and go to the other, this happens in the U S as well. um, That, that information goes with them. So you got to think about that. Um, So I think that was an issue. I think when it got into lighting fixtures, As we got into that process, you know, in the beginning, I think we had some pretty unique technology. I think over time, while our technology was still unique, there were less complicated ways to solve those problems. And so, you know, to be honest, in the last few years of my time at Cree with our Cree lighting business, um, we actually had multiple brands. And the Cree brand was the most high-tech stuff, had the most science involved, was all made in the U.S. Either, at, uh, uh, either in Racine or at one of our subcons. Um, and then we had a product line that we brought in under, under a different brand that we had actually made in Asia. And what I would tell you is, is that those products were every bit, to the specs that we guaranteed, they were every bit as good as the specs we guaranteed. Now, were they different specs? Often, yes. We did a ton of qualification work to get to that point and not every vendor was able to do it, but we were actually able to build two product lines with two different customers in mind. And and what I would say to you is um, when it was time to install lights, whether they be in the company or even in my own house, some of those were the Cree brand and some of those were the other ones and they worked just fine. Hmm. And so I don't know that I would say maraud. I mean, so we were in that business. No, you're not, you're the not the you Marauders.
0: Be- so what, what, what happened was the, 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 as the, you know, in, in 2014, you could go over to China with a hundred grand and you were a lighting manufacturer, um, the next you know two weeks later, or whenever the container arrived. And then, you know, you, it was very simple to get certification, uh, get your products on the quality products list at the DLC. And this, and what happened to me, and and this is in my estimation, maybe you can comment on this. um, The, uh, what happened was that uh, the brand awareness or the difference between lighting brands, whether it be Cree, whether it be Cree's uh, private label brand, where they don't want to put their name on, whether it be uh, GE or whoever is on the box and company X that just brought their container in last week was that they all were DLC, they're all DLC certified. And so the customer doesn't care because it, uh, it gets a rebate and it's on the QPL. And this caused a lot of devastation to entrenched brands in the lighting business. And now you see it. Um, Cree doesn't really make lighting anymore. Neither does GE, Phillips, Sylvania. They're all out. They all change their names. They're all out. And I think the reason for that is the, the wrong kind of government intervention. The Government intervention on the customer purchase side, which accelerated technology before it was ready which accelerated, uh, created a lot of problems with LEDs and um, also eliminated all the leaders in the lighting business. All the corporate leaders are gone now. And there's, ma- look, listen, there's many associations. The NCQLP probably had their funding from GE Phillips and Sylvania, Greg, in the past. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah you go to their website, they have no major funders now. Um, so, like, th- th- this jo- Johnny come lately and the Lighting Marauders came in and they were empowered by this DLC kind of thing, and I'm hitting them hard because, uh, you know, I, I loved, I like the people at the DLC. I'm not criticizing anybody personally. I'm just observing what I believe happened in the last 10 years, and I think the channel went through the DLC, and it caused a lot of problems in the industry and for end users.
2: What are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah. So look, I, I, yeah. So a couple things. You know, we were really early in this, and you know, we were the guys that first came out with the five-year warranty, then the 10-year warranty. And for us to do that, we couldn't do that as a public company without a bunch of science to prove that out. Mm -hmm. And I would tell you, it was hard because and what we knew early on was especially I would say we actually saw this on the lighting fixture side before we saw it on the lamp side, which was, you know, and, and we'd see it in outdoor lighting, especially people would throw a bunch of LEDs in and claim they hit the specs. But we were testing those LEDs along with our own. And we knew that those LEDs, because of the materials, it, it, what was happening is we were putting LEDs into places they had never been put before. And those products met oftentimes would meet those specs up front. But understanding the physics and the material science behind what was going to happen over time that they were going to degrade and so you'd get you know some of the lights that turn yellow or greenish or you saw some that would just go out because there was shoddy so there was everything from shoddy manufacturing to just not understanding the science Mm -hmm. i think that's the nature of any business i think what dlc was trying to do is say hey at least they we think they meet the specs up front um i think there was a real uh, limitation on the back end. you know, when we were sitting there looking at our warranty and other people said they were offering it as well, we're going, we've tested your stuff. Like it, it. it we know what it will do. Now that being said, um, you know, there was only so much we could say on that side. So I would put that on one side. On the lamp side, I would say it's a little different. So in the lamp business, let's be honest, GE Phillips and Sylvania did not want LED lamps to happen.
0: True. Agreed. They were Agreed.
2: resistant to it. Yep. Um, they, I remember making a, I in 2006 made a presentation, said, Someday we'll do general lighting. And all three of the CEOs of the lighting companies at the time stood up at the same conference and said, Hey, that's a nice young guy from Cree, but just, you know, it'll never happen. The technology we have today is good enough. Customers will never want anything better than incandescent or fluorescent. That was our statement. The customer will, so, they were not eager to get into the LED lamp business. Now they came out with some early stuff. They were selling lamps at 30 bucks a piece. They didn't dim, they were the wrong color. They looked like science projects. No wonder no one did it. And, and you need to know, Cree spent two years trying to sell LEDs and help them be successful. It wasn't until a scientist walked in my office one day and said, look, I know we're not supposed to be working in this. I know you said we're not gonna make LED lamps. I'm sick of watching these guys here and he put that prototype on my desk and it was 12 months later, the Cree bulb came into the marketplace. Um, so I, I don't feel too bad for those guys because they fundamentally resisted that shift in the marketplace. When I say that the lamp manufacturers. Um, now, what happened later on is, as soon as we opened the category, the large retailers actually drove the market for secondary vendors. They essentially went to Asia and said, okay, this Cree one is this good. Give me something that's cheaper because that's how I'm going to sell them. And that was was their stated strategy up front. And so they helped create some of these other, frankly, this infrastructure in Asia to make that business model work. And what I would say is there were some early on some bad lamps But overall, the retailers actually at least did a reasonably good job of making sure that those products pretty quickly kind of did what they said. They didn't claim there was good. I think the lamp side with it on the fixture side, that was a much messier transition. Um, And in that case, I think it would have. That one is interesting because if you go back and look at what the market looked like um, before Cree buys rude lighting, we make down lights. We're a niche player. And there's not a big push for LED anywhere. We buy rude lighting and the industry kind of woke up and honestly, you know, acuity made an incredibly important decision at that point in time, which is we're going to get into this business serious. And it wasn't great for Cree in the long run, but that decision really helped change that side of the business. Now, it didn't stop the cheap brands from coming in. You know, we had the light tubes that broke, we had all kinds of other junk that came along. Uh, but unfortunately that's part of the business. And, know, what I would say is, Is it DLC's fault or is it the people that imported stuff and never tested it? I mean, let's face it. There was a lot of people that made money in the U.S. selling that stuff that probably knew it was junk. I would say, I would
0: say it's the DLC's fault. That would be my response. I would say that because, and here's why. It's not because they did a bad job within their mandate. I think they did what they were supposed to do. The problem was the unintended consequences. So what happened was they didn't realize that DLC was the number one brand in the lighting business, and they and and you know when I asked Tina about this, she won't won't admit that. And then I asked her again, you know, you're the most powerful person in lighting, and you know she like no 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 we're just we, all we're doing is this, but that's not what that's not what happened. What happened was the end user customer, the people I talk to every day, is it DLC? Is it DLC? Is it DLC certified? Right to the end user. You have people that buy the lights at a facility that know that all that matters is whether it's DLC and that's it. Nothing else. The utility doesn't care about anything else. I get my rebate money. And so I don't think the DLC understood and maybe not even to this point did they understand that the end user customer was doing two things. One, they were looking at DLC to not for energy of efficacy, but for quality. They, the end user and which customer, was never
2: what they were, right. Never and went, that wasn't their mandate.
0: Nope. But that's what was happening in the marketplace. The second thing was so, that, that, if the, that if the utility was willing to fund this, then it has to be quality. And those two things happened, and it happened all over North America. And, uh, you know, they may not like that, but that's what happened. And it's still happening right now. And they don't know that, or they haven't admitted that, or they haven't come to terms with that.
2: Yeah, so I, I get that as, as the manufacturer that was sitting on the other side of that, I was frustrated with DLC as well, but honestly, I was more frustrated with all the people that we had helped educate about how an LED works, what's really important, what quality is, who then when they could buy something cheaper, that as long as it said DLC would jam it down their customer's throat because they could make more money. So while we can blame DLC, there's a whole lot of people in the supply chain that knew exactly what that knew they were taking a risk and were more interested in making money on that job than selling the higher quality products that were out there. Cause it wasn't like we weren't very clear about educating people that there was a difference, but we didn't have access to that end customer. And so I I get it. I I agree. DLC was misused, but I, I have a hard time forgiving the people in the middle that profited from doing things that they were more aware of than they, I I was the guy who had the more expensive one that started losing those
0: jobs. (laughs) I did a
2: great job of explaining there was a difference in the quality. They said, we don't care. We're going to sell this one because I can win the project and make more money. At some point, I have a hard time absolving that part of the channel for their
1: role in that. Do you think that's ever going to change? Are we going to get back to a point where quality is going to matter again in lighting?
2: You know, so what was interesting is that... I think markets usually fix themselves over time. It's painful, it's ugly. Uh, What'll happen is the people that try to get away with it the longest, eventually their customer is gonna go, I'm not doing business with you anymore. So yeah, I think there will be. I think at the other side of it is, I think we have to acknowledge that it's made in Asia doesn't mean low quality. And I think having the brands that are still around saying, "Let's, let's prove to people, I mean, look, if you, there's testing. And I like, you guys know I haven't been in the details of the lighting business for the last couple of years, but there was plenty of data that was available. If the customer just took a few minutes to look to see, okay, it says DLC, but show me that really what this light is guaranteed at. Show me the test data that says, just like we look at, look, no one designs in a light without looking at the you know, the spectrum and where the light's coming out. Okay, well, look at the reliability data. Is this from a certified lab or not? I mean, it's not that hard for a customer to say, I wanna see it and make sure. Now we need the utilities to care, you're right. You know, we need them not to look a blind eye. Um, you know, I think, and, and part of that is, and, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, part of this is one of the uniquenesses about this industry is that the person that will suffer from the bad light is not the person that made the decision to buy the light. So often, it's a really unique industry, right? Because, you know, guys, we we were building a new building for Cree, and I get the plans, and the plans had fluorescent troffers in them. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you guys doing? We're it's an LED lighting factory, and the architect and the specifier. I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like. Well, I wanted to hit the number and I said, well, wait a minute. And I, I mean, I saw this firsthand. So I think there is a, and I'm not, I'm not, I guys, I I'm not making excuses. I'm not trying to blame anyone. I think there is an education. I, I think if we could work to get the owners and the users of the lights to be more involved in the decision process, this thing would start to clean itself up. And I don't mean we have to take out the people that service them, but let's just be more transparent. I, because, think, that's,
0: I think you're wrong uh, about one thing. Um, and that, in that it's not, just it wouldn't human. be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's not just human. So like the, that statement you made that the, the people that specify or install the lights are not the ones suffering. I think all living things are suffering from the outdoor lighting, um, disaster that has been the last 10 years. Um, and I'm not just talking about human beings with light trespass. I'm talking about animals and wildlife and birds and um and so that's particularly what your statement that you made is particularly true with street lighting and outdoor lighting and dark skies and animals and wildlife and um that's a, an issue that you know greg and i and and the starving for darkness podcast which is another podcast we do um is really trying to get the industry to, to to just do some internal soul searching about that because a lot of people have their heads in the sand um and the, that problem was made a magnitude worse by LEDs not better it was made worse so while I, I think we've captured the energy savings and we've reduced the carbon emissions like that's a positive a societal benefit is the reduction in carbon emissions there's still a ton of wasted light we're using too much of it it's the wrong color it's uncontrolled and um, we need to focus it and get it right outside and that is a solvable environmental problem Chuck and it's a mistake the industry made, but I think the indus- there's nothing wrong with saying we made a mistake and now we're going to get it right. And you know what? If we do that, Chuck, there's a lot of light fixtures to sell in the next 10 years. There's a lot of things that we can do that are super positive for the world because this is a solvable light pollution is real pollution. And it's actually a solvable environmental problem that we can, the lighting industry should take on, grab the bull by the horns. What do you think of that, Chuck?
2: Uh we could have solved it a decade ago. Yeah, for um, sure, absolutely. The market, the market forces. Look, we we were uh, the original. If you look at the original Rude lighting fixture, we had an optic on every LED. Mm-hmm. We could yes, that's I mean, right. if you look at the light control we I mean, had, it was exact. And what happened was, is the market went to light bombs, and that became yep. good enough because the customer said that was good enough. We also, well, I, I want to say seven or eight years ago. We came out with, we could have tuned the light to any spectrum you wanted. We even offered it to some people. And it was like, yeah, you know, and and we did some tests, even here in Raleigh, I remember doing some tests where they had some neighborhoods that didn't want LED lights, had the color. So we actually built them a different color spectrum light to see if they got a different reaction from from the neighborhood. And they did, but we were never able to get traction around Quality of light and and let's just light pollution is one aspect of quality of light. It's it's totally controllable, right? That's the magic of LEDs. The challenge we got is that as it went mass market, it was dumbed down. It was about the cost. And and look, and there is a cost. And the fact is, I think one of the things we often forget about is the lighting industry can't do this on its own unless the customer is willing to spend the money or we don't charge them extra for it. Like, that's the other thing we could do, right? The the innovation of LED is at one point, everyone assumed it would always be more expensive, right? It's actually not. It's not. Like, yeah. think think about how crazy that is. Let's go back a decade ago. LED lights are the lower cost solution. Um, so it's possible. It's just a matter of, I think the industry has a role, but I think it's we have to get the the customer to care about this issue or find an issue they do care about. And one of my, as you guys know, I spent the last few years talking a lot about innovation. One of the challenges we have is in innovation is there are things we want to have happen and there's problems we care about, but the fact is the customer doesn't care enough about them. And so we need to do this in a way where the customer does care. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that LED lighting was originally going to save energy. And when we started down that path, a very small percentage of people really care about saving energy. It's a very small percentage. Almost everyone cares about saving money. When LED lighting was truly about saving people money, they cared. And so I think for dark skies or whatever, light pollution needs to become an economic phenomenon and it 'll get done as long as it 's a you and I are debating is that more important than some other thing we should fund sure I think you I think you it will struggle and and i don 't think it I think it can be done, and we can hit the cost objectives, but I think we 've got to go about it that way and, and let 's just go to building controls since you mentioned it earlier. another example building controls make lighting cheaper, especially if you do them sure. in a very logical way. And I don't even know if Cree makes this product anymore. But if you go back and look at SmartCast, our idea with SmartCast was this. Why would you make controls complicated? So literally, we made light fixtures with controls that you didn't do anything. Like they self-installed. And so literally, like the electrician puts them up, you hit a button, the system would set itself up. We struggled like crazy to get that product sold. And you know who liked it the least? The end user? No, <laughs> who distributors and installers?
0: Yeah, we hate yeah. controls. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Distributors well, and installers but, hate
2: controls. But but think about it. we. But but think about it. it's a trend. We could add real value, and the control was you didn't need to know anything about the control. It, it like yeah, it always we, sounds that
0: way. You know, oh, I, I, I don't mean. I don't mean to. Like, I don't. I, I don't know SmartCast specifically. I, I. I. never was a Cree distributor at any time, so I don't know much about SmartCast.
2: See, well, that was your first mistake. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Chuck.
2: But here, see, uh, the old so, guard. The old guard meets the new guard. Yeah.
0: Well, you know what? I. I was told those. I had a lot of promises. Promises from control companies that made different kinds of sensors, and uh, you know, it turned out it didn't work couldn't see through smoke, uh, it turned out that, uh, you know, that um, the microphone actually heard more than they said it did. And there's all manner of things that self-commissioning controls, when you start getting into the applications, can be problematic out of, out of the factory, out of the lab, into the real world. You know, and, and distributors have all, like, as soon as you start doing controls, Greg, you know, you're going back to the site, no matter what it is, right?
2: But I want you to take that sound bite. Your soundbite is perfect. I want you to go back and listen to that soundbite when we're done and realize I've never tried SmartCast, but I know controls are a pain in the ass. They never work right. They always have more problems.
0: I do a lot of controls. Don't get me the wrong way. I do a lot of controls, but most distributors don't want to
2: do controls, including me. I'd rather not, but I do a lot. Right. And my point is because our approach to controls is completely stupid. Yes, I agree with that. Controls are not an add-on. It is an integral part of the interaction with the light. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that someone has to commission controls and someone has to spend extra money to install the controls and someone has to go back and service the controls, that's not a value add. The whole point of controls is to make that all go away. And was Smartcast perfect? No, but it was a fundamentally different value proposition. It scared the shit out of people because they couldn't get paid for it. We were going to give away controls for free. Mm. Well, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make. That was our points. plan. I have to, I have to yeah. say and something. And so my point though I, is, is yeah. and, and so, and my point being is that, was it perfect? Probably not, we just got started with it. But where we were going, and it wasn't meant to be like, you have to buy this control. So it, you know, this is no, the, you just buy the lights and you get the benefit. That was the idea. And we're not going to charge you more for it. I think we charge 10% more. But the point being that that was the type of thinking that the industry needs to where instead of controls as an opportunity for everyone to make more money on the installation, you want to see great building controls? Let's force ourselves to do it where there is no incremental. That's disruptive innovation. Watch it. Watch it. (laughs)
0: watch it buddy <laughs> All right, listen, i listen brother will, you know, uh, like listen yeah. i mean the money talks and bullshit walks brother
2: um that's you know right. and that's that's exactly why the customer is frustrated with the in, the gap between the person trying to invent it and the person trying to use it we're not trying to make their look i'll tell you i'll tell you when controls will happen model.
0: i'll tell you when controls right. will happen in the lighting industry when the uh when the person monitoring the controls monetizes the people under the controls, just like in the inversion that Microsoft and and that Google started where the user of Facebook is not their customer, it's their product. So if you use Facebook, you are the product. If you search on Google, you're the product that Google sells. That inversion has to happen. And that'll happen with monitoring and surveillance. And if we want that, when that happens, when the person that wants the information from the controls is willing to pay to deploy them and make them work amazing, just like Amazon or you know whatever these companies are, then you'll see controls everywhere. Um, and and but- I
2: believe it will happen when you don't have to pay for it. And I believe it's coming. I think I it's, believe the other, I believe, I think that you're going to pay with data. The, the I, I don't think you're going to have to pay with data. It's, it's this guy's, this thing is a controls device disguised as a smartphone. Yeah, all right. Maybe. It, it, and it has capabilities that we don't even use yet today. They didn't charge you for them. They made it part of the benefit of this product. And then they found other ways to monetize. Do I think people will charge for data over time? Yes. I think what will happen is. You'll get massive installations of things with basic controls that people buy because it's better than a light without controls. It won't cost anymore. And then they'll figure out on the back end, how do we use that system? I think this idea that you have to convince someone to pay upfront for the value is not actually how tech disruptive technology. I think you give it to them as an additional value. So here's the problem there is no cost the incremental cost difference to make a light with a control and without a control is negligible. So at some point someone's going to offer it for no additional cost because it's real, not real. Hmm. Like that light up there that's full of sensors already. That's full of all the electronics. All I got to do is connect the dots. It's some engineering, it's software, but once it's done, like, we think of controls as this extra thing. Every light fixture can be a f- controlled fixture, and it doesn't require anything extra in the long run. Now, we maybe aren't there, but we were way closer to that five years ago than anyone thinks. That being said, we couldn't sell it, and we couldn't sell it because we didn't find a way for the people that sold it to benefit from it. That would be my argument. Mm-hmm. There was an incentive for you, for example, to how do I want to make every job a controls job? Because it's good for me and good for my customer. There wasn't that connection. And well, there's certain, there's certain think... applications that are amazing for controls.
0: And like on from a customer energy saving, whatever perspective, there's certain applications, rack aisles, for example. Excellent. Almost all rack aisles should have even a basic sensor in them. But there's other applications where the controls just don't add any value. You turn the lights off. But if they don't the cost... The,
2: yeah, the, the question though is is So if I could have lights that turn themselves off automatically at the end of the day for the same price at ones that don't, why wouldn't I put the other ones in and I get to day I agree with you.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's where I I think that's as long as there's no issues with that, brother.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So here, I think
0: here's what I would say. I think the lighting industry needs less disruption. I think it needs less innovation, and it needs a lot more reconciliation. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think.
2: yeah well, what I've found is that uh, it, i've never seen an industry stop disruption once it starts yeah. it, uh, wow. it innovation wins a hundred percent of the time. there's no industry that's ever not been affected by it. It, it, it it goes slower and faster, but the fact is is that if there's an inefficiency in the market, someone will find it and and, and find it over time and uh, you know I got to spend the last three years looking at a lot of other industries, and I don't have an example of one that didn't get disrupted. And I think where we're at in lighting is I think we're halfway there. I think we're actually more on the way than people think. I think it's painful right now, but uh, you, know, you know, we can get into a conversation about design. The fact is, is that most buildings can be designed with an algorithm and do 95% of it versus what we're doing today. We've we so overcomplicated the design of lighting in a building. It's ridiculous for what the actual value to the end user is. And I think we're going to see that happen over time. And it doesn't mean there aren't some great lighting designers and we shouldn't do some cool things. We should do that. That's a much smaller percentage of the market than where the majority of lights are installed today. And so, you know, that was a conversation I recently had, which is I really think we're gonna see this, the algorithm side of lighting design is going to radically change. And actually it's going to reduce the complexity of what people buy. Because the fact of the matter is, the number of options that you offer to a customer to solve their lighting problem is so far beyond useful or value added other than the fact that people like to look at lots of things Mm -hmm. it is lighting is in the retail business they would claim lighting is unshoppable there's actually so many choices it's impossible to figure it out and i think you know i really do think the lighting industry over time we will see less options I do think quality will work itself out. I think, I, I agree your point that we've seen some bad stuff come, but I think those things usually fix themselves. Eventually they, the guy that screws the over a couple of times usually gets figured out. At least that's been my sense. Um, but uh, I think we're going to end up in an okay place, but I do think it's a somewhat simplified in terms of the amount of the amount of different variations of the same thing we need, I think is, is going to change. I just, I don't, I don't see a market that will continue to pay for that long term. That's at least my opinion as an outsider.
0: I think it's you're trying to uh, like you. It's almost like there is a what you're talking about is the drive to commoditization, including controls. That's what needs to happen. Like this has to become a commodity, just in everything and it simplified, and that's what it is. And I I would agree with you on that, Chuck Sabota. Thanks for being a guest on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, my friend.
2: Guys, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for including me and uh, good luck on your journey. And hopefully some of the things I said will come true. And you can call me back when half of them don't, because I know that's going to (laughs) happen.
0: Awesome, man. And folks, if you made it to the end here, uh, we got to tell you real quick about the original. That's right. Energy
1: Focus. That's E-N-E-R-G-Y-F-O-C-U-S dot com. Greg, Eric. That's right. Their Nuvole portable UVC air disinfection device can recycle the air up to five times in a 200 square foot. Room in an hour, no filter change, easily replaceable UV light, and aesthetically pleasing.
0: Ooh, come on, man. And go to, you know, proud members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, NAILD.org. Come on, man. If you don't join Nailed now, I don't know when you're going to, but that's what Chuck's talking about. You got to come and join the team. That's right. Team Nailed. Get in here. (laughs) And of course, Chuck Sabota. We didn't even talk about half his resume. Maybe we'll do it again sometime or roll it back and we'll get into a little bit about the vast therapeutics and the innovator in residence in Marquette at Marquette university. But for right now, Chuck, thanks very much.
1: My pleasure guys.